When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Arliss Bunny. And I'm Joel Dent. And I'm David Paquette. And David is one of our new associates here on Hopping Mad. Will is sunning himself in Europe this week, and in fact, next week as well, and we're all really, really jealous. So Joel and David have joined me today on Hopping Mad. And David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, Arliss, I'm uh, 65, turning turning 65 tomorrow, as, in, as a matter of fact. And, um, Many carrots. Been a... Oh, thank you. I, uh, I'll, I'll cherish them. Um, I uh, work as a uh, healthcare economics researcher. My training back in the day was in nursing. So I've been a registered nurse going on 40 years. And about the last 15 years have been in research. So you might be able to help us out a little bit on the health care and health insurance side of things. Well, I'd like to try. <laughs> uh, it's a, I've, I've heard it's a terribly complicated field. <laughs> I, I just heard that recently. Yeah. So do you have a nomination for the Hopping Mad Lying Liar Lie of the Week? You know, Arliss, I was so thrilled that you asked me to nominate a lying liar because I'm, I'm really actually a connoisseur of lies. Um, I've, I've, uh, I've spent, um, most of my life, actually, uh, more than 55 years of my life reading everything I could get my hands on about climate change. And so I, I have come across a lot of lies and some really good ones. And so I thought that for my nominee, I would, I would, um, not just go for the number of Pinocchios or how close to pants on fire I can peg the meter, but rather go for style points. A new was... and innovative approach. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 of course, another aspect of, of, uh, of a lie is the medium. And in this case, the, uh, the medium is, is really the natural home of the lie, the tweet. Okay. Um, this is the uh, this is the new lying liar lingua franca. Uh, if if you want to express the emotional impact of a unique moment, you reach for the haiku. If you want to lie like a dog, you tweet. And um, my lie uh, is actually a tweet in response to another tweet. So it's a compound. the uh, The original tweet was Senator Bernie Sanders who very reasonably tweeted out, let us be clear, and this is not trying to be overly dramatic, thousands of people will die if the Republican health care bill becomes law. Yeah, which is to absolutely which, true. Which is absolutely true. And to which my, my nominee, Orrin Hatch, tweeted, the brief time when we were not accusing those we disagree with of murder was nice while it lasted. Oh my! 
truly a magnificent mendacity. I, I, well, the first thing I just want everybody to wrap their minds around is the mental picture of Orrin Hatch trying to figure out how to use a smartphone. <laughs> I, I'm sure he has people for that. But, um, I, you know, I, in, in, in trying to wrap my mind around this, I, I was thinking of it like a, like a fine wine. Uh, and I'm from and white I, country, so... How wonderful! Well, you'll you'll appreciate this. You I know how identify. how wine wine whinies. What's the name for somebody who's really into wine? Anyway, is it a whiny? No, I don't think that's it. Anyway, <laughs> no. uh, you know they'll say things like, "Oh, it's an oaky red with plummy flavor and hints of vanilla." So, so my description of of Orrin Hatch's tweet is a robust, full-bodied lie with a sharp vitriolic aroma. The prominent <laughs> flavor is. Self-serving allusion to tragedy with a hint of ad hominem attack. And the finish <laughs> is pretended victimhood with a false note of disappointment in others. Oh, Bernie, you hurt my feelings when you tweeted that. <laughs> it's a, you know, the thing is, the core lie is so well hidden. It's a lie wrapped in a libel and double dipped in snark. It absolutely the, the is. Actual, the actual lie, if you say it right out, just sounds stupid. Raul Labrador said it a few weeks ago. Nobody dies because they don't have access to health care. <sighs> you know? And, and the thing about it is, if you say something that false, that directly, the next thing you know, you're turned into a feeder rat for the late night comets. It, it's It's... You know, you'll have people saying things like, nobody suffocates because they don't have access to air. air. <laughs> <laughs> nobody starves to death because they don't have access to food. Carrots, and, and of right. course, he explained that what he meant was that nobody is without access to health care because there are emergency rooms. And that's a lie, too. I mean, we know. I mean, we know so much about how people die in this country. We know more about that than we know about how to keep them alive. We, we go into incredible detail in tracking and adding up all the statistics. We can tell you if somebody died from getting hit by a bus or hit by a golf ball or by something that fell off an airplane or a piece of furniture that fell out of a burning building. They even track categories of people who got killed when their jet skis caught fire and people who got sucked into jet engines. So believe me, we know what happens when, when jet people don't have When their jet skis caught fire, there's a oh, yeah, category there's a, for that? There's a code for that. There's, a, there's, a, there's an ICD-10 code for, okay. for jet skis that, being injured or killed by jet skis catching fire. <laughs> well, you know, if you turn on the radio and you hear, you know, the, the announcer begin by saying, well, last year, 15,000 people were hit in the head by golf balls. How do you think they know that? Yeah. You know, the the Center for Disease Control tracks all that kind of stuff. So so we know what happens when people don't have insurance. We know how many of them die. And in fact, I was looking at the statistics and tried to twist it into something that's a little bit more tangible. Of course, you remember the impact that horrible, horrible September 11th attack in 2001. And so, yeah. you know, those thousands of people 
all gone for no good reason. Now imagine that the same thing happened again on October 5th, 2001, and then again on October 29th, 2001, and then again on uh, November 23rd, 2001, and on and on every 24 days since then. That is the number of people who have died ever since 2001. We're talking a 9-11 every 24 days, 237 of them since September 11th, 2001. That's how many people have died. 237 24-day increments? 237 24-day increments during which the same number of people died from not having insurance as died in the 9-11 attack. Oh, my God. Well, that's sobering. Thank you, Orrin Hatch. (laughs) So... So the core lie is just exquisitely bad. And then he turns it into an attack on the most popular politician in America. Thank you, Orrin Hatch. I, on the other hand, am nominating, well, I'm nominating one person, but really he's part of a trio. And I'll get to the explanation for that. My nomination for the Hopping Mad Lying Liar Lie of the Week is Energy Secretary Perry, who said this, we're ending the bureaucratic blockade that has hindered American energy creation. Because folks, in case you didn't know, because all we've heard about all week long is healthcare and health insurance, in case you didn't know, this is energy week. That, of course, is breakthrough information that the White House has been working hard on. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Energy Secretary Perry, he was previously the governor of Texas, the longest-serving governor of Texas, and he did finish 12th on Dancing with the Stars. So this is a multi-talented man. When he ran for president— And a great, a great admirer of, of maple syrup. Okay, that I didn't know about him. You never saw the, you never saw the clip of him caressing a bottle of maple syrup? <laughs> no. he was he was high you know he was taking a lot of drugs for pain back in the day when he was forgetting the name of the uh department, department that he of had. energy and at some point somebody had handed handed him a bottle of maple syrup. you've got to look for this youtube video it is just unbelievable okay i'll, I'll have to make a point of doing that he did say in his confirmation hearing my past statements made over five years ago about abolishing the department of energy do not reflect my current thinking in fact this is what i love after being briefed on so many of the vital functions of the department of energy i regret recommending its elimination because as a presidential candidate it's okay to recommend getting rid of something you have no idea about what it does (laughs) none at all it's just amazing to me. Uh, he, you know, the part of that that really that really just dropped my jaw was when it come to find out he didn't even know that it had anything to do with our nuclear arsenal. Yes, right. Well, and he's he's replacing a PhD physicist. Yeah, I know. Oh. I know. <laughs> um. So Perry also this week. He rolled out a new buzzword, dominance, which I'm sure is aimed, of course, straight at the Trumpoids. Energy Secretary Perry, Interior Secretary Zenke, who was my lying liar last week, 
and EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, they all got together this trio that I'm going to call PZP, and they <laughs> had an op-ed in the Washington Times in which they said some just amazing things this week. Quote, Dominance means being a self-reliant and secure nation, free from the geopolitical turmoil of other nations that seek to use energy as an economic weapon. Close quote. Now, I just want to press pause on that for a minute because I thought Jared had Middle East peace completely in hand. I thought it was almost a done deal. I thought we didn't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing about the Middle East is really our oil under their land. I don't know how they managed that. Well, how they managed to forget that? Yes, exactly. And (laughs) PZP, my favorite dynamic trio, went on to say, an energy-dominant America will export to markets around the world, increasing our global leadership and influence. Except, of course, that the world is working pretty hard on importing less energy. And when they do, importing clean energy. Just ask Qatar, who's sitting on the world's biggest liquid natural gas field. So we're talking about exporting coal. He's talking about exporting coal, among other things, because the Trump administration has announced that we are the Saudi Arabia of coal. Other countries don't want coal. They don't. No, They want clean energy. It's what they're building. It's what they're, you know... (laughs) It's entirely I think it was to one of your liking it, that we're doing what we're doing right now. I know it was one of your three stooges a couple of weeks ago who said something about how China shouldn't be preaching to us about coal because look at the air in Beijing. Yeah, and, that was Secretary and, Perry. Yes. Oh, oh, it was okay. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. I, I, I had forgotten that uh, that it was uh, it was he. The thing about that and what the the timing was so incredible that week they closed down the last coal fired power plant in the Beijing area. Yes, in the exactly perfect. It timing. was literally within a couple of days of his saying that that China shouldn't be preaching to us because of the air in Beijing. And China and, made a big announcement about it. I mean, they came out and they quoted that. In their press conference. They, Perry? Yeah, yes, they, they quoted, quoted Perry? Yes, yeah, in their <laughs> press conference. Okay, that's great. The other thing that PZP said that I just love in this op-ed was, for the first time in decades, the energy story in the United States is about becoming an energy exporter and no longer about peak resources or being beholden to foreign powers. For years, here's the key. For years, Washington has stood in the way of our energy dominance. That changes now. I'm sure both presidents Bush, oil men as a profession, would be interested to hear that they stood in the way. The energy dominance of the U.S. has risen dramatically under the Obama administration. As part of the Obama administration, much to the chagrin of environmentalists nationwide, And in fact, Native Americans nationwide who have been fighting various incursions on their land. So I was mistaken because, of course, the Trump coterie would would not be even acknowledging anything like that about Obama. My God. Right. Exactly. So here are some lies and facts about the Trump administration and the Obama administration as it pertains to energy. So the Trump administration has said during this week, U.S. has 20% more oil reserves than Saudi. Now, I know there's, there's math and then there's Republican math, 
But this is beyond that. This goes way beyond that. As of the end of 2014, the U.S. had 32.3 billion barrels of oil in reserve, in, you know, under the ground. And yeah. the Saudis had 268 billion barrels. That's 32.3 to 268. <laughs> and we still import 4.8 million barrels a day of crude or refined petroleum products. So these guys aren't even in the universe of accurate. They also went on to say... The U.S. will soon become a net exporter of natural gas. And they crowed about having authorized, but not yet actually issued, a liquid natural gas export permit. And I'm saying that as a singular because the Obama administration issued 11 liquid natural gas permits. And in eight years, they only turned down two. Finally, as the cherry on top of all of this, the PZP trio admired themselves and the Trump administration for the Petronova plant. The Petronova captures carbon dioxide from coal plant stacks and uses it to push additional oil out of oil fields, which are primarily depleted. And the Obama administration, of course, funded that plant to the tune of $190 million. But don't worry, even after crowing about it, Perry and company are planning to dramatically reduce funding on research on carbon capture, storage, and technology. Obama spent... Well, coal is clean all by itself, Arliss. I yeah, mean, right. what do you need to do? I mean, it's, 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 it's pure as the driven snow. Yeah, there's a, there's a clean coal plant just about 15 minutes from me, which, by the way, was shut down and replaced with a natural gas plant, which is on the same property. Just out of curiosity, what was the technology there? At the coal plant? Yeah. I don't actually know. What made it clean? I, the American Electric Power owns the plant. And under the Clinton administration and then under the Obama administration. Oh, oh, oh of course, yes. So clean coal meaning less sulfur, less particulates, yes. less soot and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, they but refitted not the stacks. CO2. Right. No, no. They no, refitted the stacks um, yeah. okay. in, in both cases. And they were one yeah. of the few power plants to come completely into compliance with the regulation as it stood at the time. Of course, the regulation's been eliminated now, but they closed the plant anyway. They closed the plant before that happened. The Obama administration spent $105.8 million on carbon captured storage and technology. Trump is planning to spend $15 million. So clearly they want to crow about it. And Perry is set to revive the U.S. nuclear energy, but they're gutting the funding for nuclear research 28.7%. So what we really know is that the Trump administration is seeding clean energy to other nations like China who are more than willing to watch us eat their dust. That's what we really know. So mine isn't nearly as funny as yours. I'm torn. We've hit both my sweet I, spots. I think you Medicine win on and, style and, points. Medicine and uh, carbon. I think, I think Hatch wins on style points. I think that really, I think you're right. I think it was really masterful. And well, the other thing is that Perry missed the boat by not turning it into an insult against the Democrat. Yes. Had he slipped that in there? Then it would have been hard to deny that it was a... It, it, it would have been a tie. Yes, right, it exactly. It would have been a tie. Exactly. Yep. Well, thank you, David, for joining us today and for bringing us the... I'm looking uh, forward the to winning... doing more of this. <laughs> Thanks for bringing us the winning liar lying lie of the week. Next up, we'll have Joel Dent talking to us about the new NRA ad and the, really the evil that lies beneath here on Hopping Mad.
Welcome back to Hopping Mad. And today, what I would like to discuss is the new ad that the National Rifle Association has released very recently. Now, I'm going to be reading a little bit from the uh, Business Insider's analysis of this particular ad, and then I'm going to get into a little more what exactly this ad comes from and what it's leading towards. So as Business Insider puts it, there is this ad that the National Rifle Association has put out, and they state that it has gained traction on social media this month. It urges Americans to join Freedom's Safest Place as protesters and members of the resistance movement who oppose Donald Trump's presidency smash windows, burn cars, and terrorize the law-abiding. This ad is one minute long. It features footage of protesters and marches overlaid with commentary by the conservative media personality and NRA spokeswoman, Dana Loesch. So I'm going to read the transcript here for you and just imagine like the most ominous music you can overlaying it along with pictures of scary leftists. So here's the full transcript. Well, and the other thing about this is that as Dana Loesch is saying this, she has this hateful, I mean, she just looks like she's oh, yes. filled with hate to the roots of her hair. I mean, it's just, you have to see her sneer and glare and you just, you have to see it to really wrap your mind around it. And we will have a link on our site. Yeah, it, she has basically got this look on her face that is barely contained contempt and rage. And remember that contempt and rage is pointed at all of us. So the, the transcript goes as this. They use their media to assassinate real news. They use their schools to teach children their president is another Hitler. They use their movie stars and singers and comedy shows and award shows to repeat their narrative over and over again. Then they use their ex-president to endorse the resistance. All to make them march, make them protest, make them scream racism and sexism and xenophobia and homophobia. To smash windows, burn cars, shut down interstates and airports, bully and terrorize the law-abiding until the only option left is for the police to do their jobs and stop the madness. And when that happens, they'll use it as an excuse for their outrage. The only way we stop this, the only way we save our country in freedom, is to fight this violence of lies with the clenched fist of truth. I'm the National Rifle Association of America, and I'm freedom's safest place. And one thing I really love about that ad, the little nuance of, of using safe place, you know, and safe space language tossed in there as sort of a nod to the alt-right trolls. And the way now, that they go after Obama without even using his name, without even being respectful enough to say President Obama. Oh, absolutely. They're not going to... They can't directly accuse Obama of leading the resistance because, honestly, he's just kind of doing what former presidents do. He's not out there, you know, marching in the streets. Now, for a lot of people, this might kind of come out of nowhere, but this has been brewing since the election. You see, the National Rifle Association, as I'm sure you well know, Arliss, is not really a gun rights organization. What it is, is a group of shills, a lobbying group for gun and ammunition manufacturers. They get kickbacks. When I showed this to my husband this morning, he said to me, why are you surprised by this? He was shocked that I was so surprised. Oh, yes. Well, absolutely. They, they get kickbacks from, I believe, at least Winchester and Remington for every gun sold. So after the election, the amount of guns sold in this country were plummeted. 
because there was no fear of Obama coming and taking away your assault rifles anymore, so people stopped panic buying. And they needed a new enemy, something to make you paranoid so that you would buy guns again. And what they settled on was, well, all of us. I first noticed this because I am a gun owner. I hunt. I own uh, three or four guns. So I'm occasionally on gun blogs. And I noticed the tone turning uglier and uglier and uglier. And uh, I have here a post from one of those gun blogs, a gun blog called The Truth About Guns. And I'm going to read a brief excerpt from it. I'm going to kind of just jump in to the middle of this. So... From the truth about guns, I believe it was in February that they posted this. America has fallen into civil war, a conflict pitting radical malcontents against law-abiding conservatives. Rest assured, the left's fanciful plans for a socialist utopia has no room for gun rights or other personal freedoms. The hard left has mobilized to realize their vision. They have the communication network, funding, and logistics necessary to wage a two-pronged war, violent and nonviolent. They are using violence more frequently. Black bloc Antifa agitators are not sitting on their couches pounding their chests online. They're breaking windows, beating people, throwing Molotov cocktails, and attacking cops. Make no mistake, there's a violent faction of radicals who want a physical fight. They blockade events and attack the police and those they disagree with. Now, that's just a little sampling there. And to move down a little bit later in the article, here we go. Gun owners don't want to fight. They want to be left alone. However, violence only requires one party to participate, and that party will be the radical left. Maybe it'll be a beating gone too far or a stabbing. Alternately, it might be an arson-related attack. It might come in the form of the next ambush killing of police officers or people attending a Milo Yiannopoulos event. So they're essentially trying to hype up their audience for the idea that there's all these masked black bloc leftists ready to come kill you. And this has consequences. Now, I know you remember, uh, Arliss, the Milo protests in Berkeley, right? Oh, sure. Okay, do you remember the shooting that happened there? A man named Joshua Dukes was shot at uh, one of the Milo Yiannopoulos uh, protests. And inside, Milo tried to tell the crowd that it was a uh, pro-him or a pro-Trump guy that got shot by one of the anti-protesters. But the opposite is true. And it's actually a really interesting story on how that came about. There's a husband and wife duo, uh, Mark and Elizabeth Hokoana, and uh, Mark was armed with pepper spray, and his wife had a Glock 22 caliber semi-automatic handgun. They went to the protests specifically planning to goad protesters into starting an altercation with them, into fighting them, so that the wife, Elizabeth, would be justified in shooting them. How they did this is they went, every time they saw a knot of younger protesters or people who looked like they'd be easy to provoke, Mark would go up, start screaming at them, getting in their face until somebody responded, at which point he would pepper spray them. And then when they started to push back and pepper, you know, from the pepper spray, she would get ready to shoot them. In fact, there's a video recording of this and uh, let me find it here. At one point, you see on the video him in front of her, kind of shielding her as she draws, uh, reaches into her coat and tries to draw the pistol. And you can hear on the video him telling his wife, Mark telling Elizabeth, 
They have to start this. Calm down. They have to start it. Don't shoot anyone yet. They have to start it. Oh, my God. So they were, yes, they were quite literally trying to get it to the point where they could shoot someone and claim self-defense. And in fact, originally, they weren't charged because they did claim self-defense. And then the videos started coming out, and they got arrested and charged. And the man they shot, Mr. Dukes, who is a member of one of the local workers' parties there, uh, he was not confronting them. He actually was attempting to break up the... He was getting in between them and the people that they were fighting with. He was trying to be a peacemaker, and they shot him in the stomach. He went to the hospital uh, in, to, in critical condition... He has a very long lo- road to recovery, but he did survive. So they're both charged right now with uh, third-degree assault, but then there's an upgrade of the with an assault with a deadly weapon on it. I think the maximum sentence is 10 years, but really, in my mind, this should be an attempted murder. Yeah. On it. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was premeditated. Oh, it was absolutely premeditated. There were Facebook posts that he had made the night before um, to friends of his, Facebook posts that I believe were later deleted, but it didn't matter because somebody had already caught them. But at one point, somebody asked him uh, if he was going to be armed at the protest tomorrow. He said no, his wife was, and he also said that he couldn't wait to go to the protest and that if the snowflakes got out of hand, he would wade in and start cracking skulls and that he was hoping for that to happen. So this entire situation was designed by the alt-right as literally a real-life troll. Troll somebody into attacking you and then respond with overwhelming force. Of course, since this is real life... Oh, go ahead. Did you see what Senator Murphy said today on Twitter about this NRA ad? Uh, No, I did not. Uh, He said, (laughs) I think the NRA is telling people to shoot us. Now might be the right time to cancel your membership. Absolutely. I mean, he's right. Well, back in February, uh, Wayne LaPierre, you know, the head of the NRA, uh, accused the resistance, you know, us critics of President Trump, of starting a war. Not trying to start a war, but starting a war. And uh, basically stated that we were beginning a civil war with the left. The alt-right has essentially been gunning for us since the election in online. But now, in real life, they're being pushed. And the People who are doing the pushing know this. It's stochastic terrorism. Stochastic terrorism, of course, being where you put stuff out into the atmosphere hoping that an unbalanced person will pick it up and act on it. Uh, Radio Rwanda and Father Coughlin are two simple examples of stochastic terrorism. So really, the, the main concern that I have is that there are dozens, if not more of these gun blogs where people who are ordinary people just like you and me but they're on the other side of the spectrum are being force-fed or amped up on fear and hatred and they're being told that you me the lady down the street that wears the pink pussy hat are actually dangerous violent radicals coming to kill them and that if they want to survive, they had better kill us first. Now, just 
in summation, I have seen on comment sections, which I'm not going to repeat here, calls for genocide of those of us on the left and all sorts of things that would curl your toes and whiten your hair. So be safe out there, everyone, and keep in mind that there are people pushing others into doing this. It's not just happening on its own. Yeah, and when uh, when you look at this and you think, oh, oh my gosh, it, it really looks like they're coming for us, a senator thinks the very same thing. So it's not just in our minds, it's for real. It's so, not paranoia when they're really coming uh, to get you. Yeah, when they're really out to get you, exactly. Next up, folks, here on Hopping Mad, I will be talking about trade and Trump's latest crazy. something out of my lying liar segment earlier, I forgot to say that for my information, I relied upon a really great article in the Washington Post by Chris Mooney and Stephen McFusson. I really appreciate their hard work and their excellent reporting and tip my hat to them. For this segment, the whole section at the beginning, the MMT take on what I'm about to talk about, it's a hat tip to Joe Firestone, who we've had on the show before. He's a friend of the pod, so to speak. Today, I'm talking about trade. And I'm going to start by talking about the modern monetary theory take on trade. And then I'm going to talk about trade agreements in general. In other words, I'm not going to give you another deep dive into the TPP or TTIP. This is not the day for that. But then I'm going to get into what Trump is doing right now, because there are some huge things going on in trade. And we're just completely missing them because of everything else in the news. I want to get into that toward the end, but I'm going to start with just basics on trade. Those of you who are long, long time listeners, and especially those of you who started listening when I was on the after show, this is probably the third time you've heard me talk about this in this way. So please bear with me if the beginning segment is not too long, so I won't be repeating myself too much. Exports are real costs and imports are real benefits. I'll say that again because we think of it, it is common to think of it the other way around. Exports are costs, imports are benefits. When you talk about real, as defined by economists, they mean actual goods or services, things you can hold in your hand. And it's the opposite of financial. So there's real and there's financial. So real wealth is, for instance, the measure of accumulated goods and services. So that would be when we're talking about trade, we're talking about trading cars for iPods. But nominal wealth is a measure of financial credits. That's money. So real goods and services are in your possession, whereas financial credits are an IOU. And this is particularly true when you're talking about a fiat currency, right? So it's not only an IOU, it's an IOU for something that doesn't really actually exist exactly. I mean, it's pixels and it's useful and it has a function in society, but it's not actually, you know, a real thing. So with exports, and imports. And when we talk about the balance of trade, we are fighting a meme in the same way that we are fighting a meme that says, but balanced budgets are good. In trade, we are fighting the meme that says trade deficits are bad. And here's why. 
when we import, what we give out in exchange for imports is currency, right? We pay for what we import. So we're giving out pixels. We're giving away pixels when we import. But what we're getting is something real. We're either getting a service that is useful in our economy, or we're getting a real good, a car, a piece of steel. We're getting something real in exchange for pixels. When we export, we are exporting real resources of our nation, of which there's a limited supply, to somebody else outside of our borders. So while there is an unlimited supply in this world of pixels, there is a limited supply of, say, steel or wheat or whatever we're exporting at the time. So when we talk about imports and exports, we tend to think about it in alignment with the meme that we've been sold, which is that to have a balance of trade such that we have more imports than exports is bad when actually the reverse is true because you want to be on the side where you're getting more real resources, more services. That's good. That's valuable and useful and can drive an economy. Both imports and exports are comprised of resources. And if all other things are equal, and when economists say all things being equal, they mean something that they call centrist paribus. It's a centrist paribus condition, meaning all of the variables are considered constant, which is never true in real life. But let's just say that for now. If all things are equal and variables are constant, a surplus of imports is less advantageous than a surplus of exports. A trade deficit is a good place to be. But things aren't equal. And usually a trade deficit represents a drop in employment. Trade deficits generally cause aggregate, what's called a demand leakage, which means higher unemployment, lower wages. It is employed people and wages leaking out of the economy. That's a demand leakage because were those people in the economy, they would want to be buying things. They would be using those wages to buy things and creating more demand, speeding up the economy. When they're stepping out of the economy or when they're forced out of the economy, that is called a demand leakage because economists need to come up with the driest possible way to say people's lives are screwed up by being out of work. It is the job of government, it is the job of domestic and fiscal policy to take the actions necessary to drive employment. We keep thinking that we can do this by limiting or increasing or changing exports. And we keep blaming unemployment in the economy on imports and exports. And in fact, that's part of what's really driven the political conversation here in the Midwest. Joel, you'll know that. As somebody who absolutely. has your coworkers, they're pro NAFTA, wrong? No, the, absolutely not. Yeah, working in manufacturing, the concept is that the, you know, NAFTA stole all our jobs if it isn't yeah. the illegal immigrants and so on and so forth. You know, and then they completely ignore things like the advances in technology and mechanization of the workforce. But, you know. Right, right. Well, and that's actually the greater threat to their job and will always be the greater threat to their job than NAFTA would ever be. But that's neither here nor there, because in the conversation, it's NAFTA that's taking the hit. 
And really, trade deals have other kinds of really serious problems. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But unemployment should be handled in another way. Unemployment is the responsibility of domestic and fiscal policy because it is entirely possible for a federal government to have a counter-cyclical job guarantee program. I've talked about that at great length, and I'll talk about it again in the future. But that would include a living wage, Medicare benefits, etc. It is a safety net. It is entirely possible, particularly in industries which get displaced as trade changes, as trade deals change, for there to be reparations. A job guarantee program provides not only transitional jobs for employees, but here's the thing we don't always think about. It provides a transition time, breathing space, essentially, for private industry to develop new industries. Joel, when in the history of the United States were the most people working in manufacturing? Uh, probably a little bit post-World War II or during World War II itself, I would say. It's right now. Really? Right now, yeah. This mythos that we have about people not working in manufacturing, no. And about manufacturing jobs leaching out of our economy, no. And there are reasons behind that. That's another whole show. But the moral to the story is it's different manufacturing jobs than we're used to in the past. There are lots of manufacturing jobs, but they are in smaller companies. They're in companies like mine, frankly. And what transition time does, if the government creates, if it provides a job guarantee program, what that allows is for private industry to have the time to scramble around and do something new, come up with a new idea. It happens all the time. We're an extremely inventive society. People are always looking for a new idea and a new thing to make and a new thing to create. But time, it takes time. You don't just magically get there one day. So job guarantee programs aren't just about jobs. They're about businesses too. The other thing that governments can do is state revenue sharing. They can do infrastructure spending and they can do something like a social security payroll tax holiday. Say that three times fast. (laughs) But there are options. So when we hit the wall on trade agreements and what we're thinking about is unemployment, we're looking at other countries and we're looking at the trade deal when instead we should be looking at the federal government and asking, why aren't you using your other options? Why aren't you using the other tools that are in the toolbox? Because it doesn't have to be this way. It's only this way because there isn't the political will to do it differently. That's the constraint. The constraint isn't money, and the constraint isn't not knowing what to do. The constraint is political will, which is just pitiful. It's a pitiful excuse. For people to be suffering because there isn't political will is an embarrassment, and it's a moral statement about our current politics. What our priorities are. That's right. And I can tell you myself, I have a business idea that I want to do, but I'm so busy working 60 hours a week to pay my bills that I can't go do that. I can't take the six months off and hope that it works because what would I be eating in the meantime? Yeah, exactly. And there's an enormous amount of creative energy out there in our economy, but we can't unleash it when people are working 60 hours a week just to make basic ends meet. The other thing that the government could be doing is generating legislation because there are industries that do need to be protected, vital industries. For instance, 
there is no point in time at which we will be buying fighter jets made in China. That's not happening. There are industries where we will need to be protectionist to some degree. And I don't think anybody doubts that. But in order to determine what those industries are and to determine how we're going to protect them without damaging the rest of our trade policy, that requires an actual trade policy, a very specific, narrow, targeted, real trade policy. But trade policy doesn't do us any good to protect specific industries if what it really engenders is a trade war. Trade policy is incredibly, incredibly complex and interwoven. And we're insane if we think you can take one little thing out. It's like a giant Jenga game. So how you do that, just like playing Jenga, you have to be very specific about it. The U.S. policy is not to run trade deficits. That's what we want. That's what our goal has been. But in reality, all we need to be doing is allowing trade to float freely. As long as we allow trade to float freely, things will correct if the rest of our policy is in line with our values. And right now, those things aren't in line. Don't get me wrong. We have extreme problems in trade, but we should and do need to allow our trade deficit to float freely. As we know, both parties have to be satisfied in order for a transaction to occur. And foreign suppliers are satisfied because they can secure their monies in U.S. treasuries. They want our pixels. Our pixels have value to them. So our pixels, our fiat currency is useful. And since we can never run out of it because our federal government owns the printing press that can generate the money or the pixels to create that value, whoever is invested in our goods will always be covered. Politicians should spend no more time on trade deficits than they do on budget deficits, meaning none, zero. It is not something they should be worrying about. A budget deficit is like a trade deficit. It is indefinitely sustainable. And in the end, it is self-correcting. Pay attention to employment and inflation and the rest will follow. Companies make decisions based on profits. Governments are in a position to make a decision based upon values. That we do not is our failure. So let me talk about free trade agreements in general. I'm planning to talk about NAFTA next week. So I'm just taking that piece out and setting it aside. And I'm just talking about generalized trade agreements right now. In the main, trade agreements make it harder for weaker countries to maintain policies that are in their best interest. So something like TTIP that's including lots of little countries is in general, in the main, not really helpful to those countries in the long run. There is a myth, even within the MMT, the modern monetary theory community, that the U.S. does not really make things anymore. And what they say is that we export ideas and designs and franchises and brands and engineering solutions and instructions and software. But folks, we export a whole lot more than that. And that's what I was saying a few minutes ago. More people are working in manufacturing now in the U.S. than ever before. And here's something from the National Economic Council. Since the Great Recession, manufacturing has grown at nearly twice the pace of the economy overall, making this the longest period where manufacturing has outpaced U.S. economic output in 50 years. The problem with so-called free trade agreements is that they are neither free or for the most part about trade. 
when you hear people talking about trade agreements, it's really a misnomer. What you're really hearing them talk about is a global corporate agreement because the primary objective is to protect the assets and profits of large corporations and specifically CEOs of said large corporations. As I've said in the past, when we're talking about the TPP and TTIP agreements, there are a multitude of problems, but the biggest one involves who is not at the table during negotiations. Governments send negotiators and these negotiators confer with a round table of business leaders by which they mean the CEOs of very large corporations. Meanwhile, labor unions, environmental organizations, consumer groups, other kinds of activist organizations which may have a specific pertinent interest and critically small business are not represented at all. The vast majority of manufacturing firms in the United States are quite small. In 2014, there were 251,901 firms in the manufacturing sector. All but 3,749 of these are considered to be small, having fewer than 500 employees. And in fact, three quarters of these firms have fewer than 20 employees. This is according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the statistics of U.S. business. That small business isn't even at the table is appalling. Just real quick. Now, the large corporations, I think that they use their power to butt out these smaller corporations. Don't they use the ISDS a lot to uh, keep the smaller corporations? Yeah, I'm coming there. Meeting? Oh, <laughs> yep. okay. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, <laughs> that is something I know about. <laughs> I never, yeah, I never miss a chance to hit the ISDS courts so-called okay. courts. Never ever, because they're appalling. Because only narrow interests are represented, only narrow interests are served, as you might imagine. And this really is, regulations protect workers, consumers, and the environment in theory, but they're routinely weakened and eliminated by trade agreements. So abominations like the ISDS, the Investor State Dispute Settlement Courts, and I say courts with scare quotes around it, take the place of real unbiased judicial processes. And even those, even the ISDS courts are only open to investors and governments. There's no recourse provided or allowed for any but the powerful or the most wealthy. William Black of New Economic Perspectives in 2016 on the 15th of May posted this. He said, whether U.S. CEOs or Chinese CEOs dictate the terms of the deal is irrelevant. They all want to achieve and maintain the ability to rig the system with impunity. That's really, that's what they all want. It's the only thing they want. And we tend collectively to focus on what I coin the wage differential squirrel. But this isn't a false narrative, but it is incomplete. The really big reason that foreign firms have an advantage over U.S. firms is not really wages. It's really diminished regulation. Enormous societal costs are pushed off onto workers, consumers, and the environment routinely. When manufacturing firms here push for reduced regulation, they are engaging in an extraordinarily dangerous race to the gutter. And you really don't want to know what's in that gutter water, except, you know, that we actually do need to know because it's a planet that we share. Current trade deals fail entirely to incentivize or enforce improvements, and they could. They could choose to do that. The Roosevelt Institute just, I think, last week produced a newly released Sustainable Equitable Trade Doctrine called the SET. It has three pillars, and 
frankly, it's long and I haven't gotten all the way through it, but I'll get the high points real quickly here. There are three pillars. They talk about flipping the class bias, and they're saying that trade agreements should favor the working class majority over the elite. They're talking about promoting systemic participation. The groups mentioned above, in other words, workers and consumers and environmentalists, must all be given a voice and a role in global economic governance because essentially that's buy-in if you have an important role. And in order to get these pillars, we must win power. People who believe in trade agreements which are equitable have to win elections first. That is our first work. So they have a whole series of recommendations which are all excellent. And I will do a whole show on the sustainable, equitable trade doctrine sometime in the near future. But if you get a chance, I'll put a link to it in our blog, imhoppingmad.com. Take a look, go there. It really is fascinating. They've done some really good thinking about how it's possible to actually make these things happen. And the reason that I'm actually talking about all this this week is because Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, one of President Trump's closest personal friends, also the founder of the International Steel Group, has made some recommendations to the president this week. Other members of the Trump administration who were formerly steel executives include Robert E. Lightseer, he's the U.S. Trade Representative, Stephen P. Vaughn, and Dan DiMaico. Trump's trade advisor. The problem that they're focused on is that U.S. steel imports are up as a percentage of consumption. And so, of course, domestic manufacturers are very concerned. In 2009, 23% of U.S. steel consumption was imported, and now it's 30%. Trump has been claiming that this is because China has been dumping steel into the marketplace, and he's not entirely incorrect. Commerce and Trump appear to be only looking at steel, however, as if it was a standalone industry instead of part of multiple and vast supply chains. In other words, they're just looking at this single thing and you can't do that in trade. It's impossible to do that in trade. So here are the facts. The U.S. already has imposed new restrictions on Chinese steel. That's already a done deal. President Obama did that. Additional restrictions will more likely affect Canada, South Korea, Mexico, and Japan, and, oh yes, Germany. Canada is the largest exporter of steel into the U.S. market. They provide 17% of all U.S. steel consumption. And commerce is using the justification, this just slays me, they're using the justification that a threat to the steel industry is a threat to our national security. Steel's used in over 10,000 different products used by the military, but it accounts for only 3% of U.S. steel production. So guess what, folks? I was in military contracting for a long time, DOD contracting. It's incredibly easy for the DOD to require the use of certified U.S. steel in all of their contracts. You just write it in the contract, you're done. Or they could create a strategic stockpile of steel, just like we do for oil and heating oil, and they could stockpile American steel. Or, as we do with some ag products, they could subsidize U.S. steel. There are all kinds of options. They do not have to start a trade war. But, as of this morning... Axios reports that Trump met with Pence, his cabinet, and Trump's America First advisor, 25 people. Trump advised them that he's strongly leaning toward announcing a 20% tariff on steel. 20%. Virtually the entire cabinet spoke out against the plan. Sources say well, that... Well, yeah, it's bonkers. It's a disaster. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's insane. Sources say that 22 people in the room were opposed... And only three supported it, one of whom was Trump. Pence did not weigh in. 
And here's the clincher. Trump likes the idea of a trade confrontation, and he knows that his base will, too. All he wants to do is try and bully some other country in order to feed his own ego. He has absolutely no idea what forces he's messing with. You used the Jenga comparison earlier. Essentially, he's decided that he is going to pull all three base blocks out from the bottom of the tower at once just to show off. That's exactly right. Joel, David, and I send our thanks out to the team at Netroots Radio and especially to you for joining us today on Happy Mad. You can find the broadcast version of our show on Netroots Radio Mondays at 8 a.m. The podcast version, which usually includes our extra mad extended interview, is always available on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play. Our website is I'm Hopping Mad, and you can listen to or download the show there. We welcome your comments, thoughts, tweets, and suggestions, and we really, really do. We really do love to hear from you, either through the website or via Twitter at I'm Hopping Mad. Will is on Twitter at WillMcLeod99. I'm there, of course, as Arliss Bunny. Next up is K-Girl in the Morning here on Netroots Radio.